Hey everyone, welcome to Creepy Inquiries, a podcast dedicated to all things creepy, swoopy, and true crimey, with your host, Miss Kevin and Edie, your friendly neighborhood queers. Let's Yo-yo. That's just what I was playing. I was just playing with my yo-yo. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Episode 25. Yes, she's a quarter of a century. She's, quarter she's at of our century. quarter life crisis. Quarter life? Yeah. yeah. Quarter life. Oh, yeah. It's a perfect Does she even want to be in marketing? She's not sure anymore. <laughs> Up is left, down is right. She doesn't know. Oh, too real. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, too real. Yeah, too real. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this has been 25 weeks in a row that we've been doing these episodes, so that's pretty dope. Yeah. And we have Edie back. Welcome back, Edie. Wee! Oh, Welcome thank back. you so much. I feel so welcomed. Yay. And you know what? This is um, the fifth time now that I've been is. on this glorious podcast um, as – as they say on that uh, now terrible show, Saturday Night Live, I've joined the Five Timers Club. Okay. And I realize that I have been coming to your home mm-hmm. without a gift mm-hmm. every single time. You well, are the gift. You are the gift. But thank you. Thank you. My presence is the present, mm-hmm. but I've mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. brought today an auxiliary present <gasps> in the form of a story. <gasps> Yay! Yeah. Yes. No. Yes, I come bearing gifts. Oh my god! And I am very, very, very excited. I'm very excited to share one of my favorite stories of all time with you. Oh god, this is Uh, okay. So incredibly exciting. I have been hyping this up to y'all over texts when we Mm -hmm. planned the pod, Mm -hmm. and like, it's the right amount of hype that I've been putting in it. It rules. All right. It's a considerable. Watch the listeners hate it, but it rules. Uh-uh, they'll love it. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's a considerable amount of hype, and I, I bet it lives up. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I cannot wait to hear it. I think <clears throat> I think we should do it after the true crime story. but Sure. Not, yeah, so I think that would be perfect placing for this because nice. e, this is a Creepy Inquiries exclusive. Yeah, and it's exclusive. It's exclusive. It's unprecedented. Yeah. yeah. Unprecedented. I'm not, I could have shopped it around. <laughs> I could have shopped she it really around. Could have. I, well, I'm so glad that you had chosen us. And yeah, I had to. I very much look forward to it. But before that, how was everybody's weekend? Miss, how was your weekend? My weekend was great. I uh, did a lot of relaxing. Oh. And uh, I did a lot of researching the show. I had a really kind of a bummer week. So, yeah, I just kind of mm-hmm. stayed in and did what I wanted. Fuck That's yeah. Right. 
That's mm-hmm. rad. And I'm glad yeah. that we got um, your hard work in the form of a story because that's going to be dope. And yeah. yeah, you're welcome. And everyone Doing nothing needs to is relax. my favorite thing to do. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Oh, yes. Yep. Just me and these cats laying around looking at each other. <laughs> Evie, how was your week? All I can think about now is our flag mains death. All I can think Ooh, about is yes, that show. Yes, yes. It is a delight. I have watched the first two episodes. You it's need to so watch lovely. all of the episodes. I, I, it is lovely. It <laughs> is mm-hmm. lovely and I love it. And um, as of this record, HBO Max has not made a decision about whether they will renew it for season really? two. Doesn't everyone they, love it? Everyone does love it. Everyone does love it. I haven't it because heard a single it's bad lovely. thing about it. It's because so there's great. nothing bad to say. It's wonderful. It rules. It's great. Um, it's about pirates, mm-hmm. and it's extremely queer, and it's extremely yeah. funny. And there's lots of um, swashbuckling pirates. and costumes <laughs> and hair. Oh, yes, yeah. there is costumes. The costumes. There's are costumes good. and hair. Uh, yeah. And and great cameos as well. Yes, Fun cameos throughout. Hmm. Surprising Definitely. cameos, which I will not spoil for anyone. And it's just a delight. And um, it's delightful and also at times like very emotionally devastating in a very satisfying romantic way. Um, so oh, it, it has which, to get. I have a recommendation if we're doing recommendations. Yes, please. Ooh, okay. yeah. Um, I watched Heartstoppers for the set or Heartstopper for the second time. Ah, oh, so because cute. Because it's just, it's so sweet. Were you just handed a beverage? Um, And a pizza. Did you just just get delivery? Yeah, (laughs) get you a man that'll bring you pizza. I don't want one. (laughs) Just the pizza, please. Uh, Yeah, no. I'll take a different delivery service, please. A a different delivery (laughs) method? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me a robot or or something. Make it Kristen Stewart deliver my pizza. Stop this. It's It's your... Stop it. I can't even entertain it. How dare you? How dare you do I mean, this to me? she's your ideal woman. I mean, she's everyone's. That's not true, yes. but yes. She's actually not my ideal woman. That's what's so funny. I actually do not like generally. I'm gagged. Yeah, I'm gagged too. Generally, <laughs> like, it begs the question. I generally do not like blondes. It's a thing. It's not like a conscious decision. It's just she's like I never. blonde. Right. I, under- right? I understand. Well, neither is almost anyone who has blonde hair. I mean, that's also mm-hmm. true. <laughs> Very few so were you, are naturally blends. So were you attracted to Jennifer Lawrence in Hunger Games and not on the red carpet? Or just not at okay, all because you I just, I, I'm feeling very attacked right now. No, um, no, no. I just want to make sure, sure I'm getting what you're saying <laughs> and understanding you. Yeah, we just want to understand you. As your friends, we want to understand you and nobody's listening. Sure. We just want to understand you. Yeah. <laughs> we're all just a family here. What I'm here. saying is – Outside of her with her blonde hair, I was not into it. Mm, and mm, then mm. and now that now I am. Um, so that's different. I'm not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, like yeah. not so like classic oh god crushes oh. that oh god folks our age would have had. Uh, did you have a Lucy Lawless phase? Were um, you a Xena watcher? I mean, as I, I was, had a Lucy yeah. Lawless phase. Yeah. Because I actually did not watch Xena, no. Oh. 
No. Ooh, I was rarely this. I was rarely in control of the television. Rarely. Yes. And if it was, that I got to tell you it probably wasn't going to be that. That whole I understand Saturday now. morning block of like Fox affiliate stuff was I, gold. It was Xena, Hercules. I mean, there was a roar Highlander. that had a baby Heath Ledger. Highlander was in there, the series. Um, yeah, Cleopatra 2525. Wow. 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 Jack of all trades with Bruce Campbell. Wow. Oh, it was no, so No, I never good. watched it. Yeah. I, I never, I never happened upon it. Well, this is, these are things that we'll do together. We will watch Xena, the warrior princess. I haven't seen it in fully 20 years, so does it hold up? I don't know. Um, the internet tells me that it does. I've heard the same thing. Yeah. The nice. internet has told me that it has. Mm-hmm. What I remember rules. It's got that, like, it's very, it's just, like, perfect camp. And uh, it just rules. Yeah. It's, it it rules. I, I'm so right. glad that we're doing this. I am. Me too. We need okay. to we need to do these. We should do these more often than every five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like literally, whenever you want me to be on the pod, I will be on the pod. I love. I mean, this pod. you did. We asked you like at like noon today, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'll have a story." Yeah, you did. Oh yeah, yeah I'll com- have a story. <laughs> I completely uh, dropped the ball on that. And I was like, oh, I, no, I don't remember who was going to do it either. Yeah. Oh, I okay. was like well, itching it was as the day, as the oh, morning went on. please always ask. I was always like, ask. is it, are they, nope. I know it's 25 because I listened oh, to No, please, please always ask. breaking up with me? <laughs> no. <laughs> because no, no, no. I have uh, deep anxieties, even, Amen. Inclu- even involving my best friends who I do a podcast with every five episodes, which I have no reason and to you believe have a that it running still happen. Text chain, a very active text change. We text each other every day. <laughs> like, All so, day. So often. It's it's aggressive. It's a little it's it's really nice. Actually. Y'all should be jealous of our text chain at rules. <laughs> yeah. Just mostly memes and snark. Which is yeah. what gets me through my day. Yeah, really how bad. else do humans communicate with each other exactly. through animated GIFs? Oh, no, no, uh-huh. that's it. Yeah. Um, Kevin, what have you been up to? Oh, my God. I've been preparing for this little this little dog and pony show called My Wedding. and <laughs> There's been a lot of dazzling I've been seeing. Yes, I have spent triple digits on rhinestoning Stop materials. This. That's incredible. Because that is what we're doing. At the wedding, which we we just started doing it extremely, and the the gay audacity that <laughs> Ben and I have audacity to be like we've never rhinestone before, but we're gonna do this for twenty pieces. <laughs> yes, of of uh, plastic wand flamingos, plastic rats, plastic crabs, plastic lobsters that we bought offline. Bedazzling That's them. clear confidence. It is That's really is. It, it is. really is. Who? Are we thinking that we Who are? Who gave you? Who, Who gave, gave you us that? the right? Who gave you the right? Our ancestors walked so we could run. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so Kevin could stone. Uh, <laughs> but I got to tell you, that's coming along. Are you fulfilling every childhood fantasy right now? Not or everyone, you, or but it's certain. Would you need Celine Dion to be there? No, she's she, she can sit out. Maybe. Yeah. 
But we finally figured out what we were going to now, like what we're going to use them for, because we started doing it, not really understanding. What it's like the we're going to figure <laughs> it out. Drop like a hundo on rhinestones, yeah. start rhinestoning <laughs> and being like, yeah. what are we going to, are we going to use it? What Wait, for? What are we using this oh, for? Oh, we're going to use it. We'll so figure it out. So we're going to make them into the table numbers. Incredible. Yes. That's what like it's going to happen. Yes, they're all going to be like holding some kind of um, sign that has the table number on it. Oh, that's yeah. deeply nice. cute. Oh, at first I thought you were going to, when you told me about it, I thought it was going to be like if it was crab table three, there would be three rhinestone crabs on the That's table. That's what I want to do. I want it to be like four rat tables. So like, oh, you're seated at rat three. And yeah. uh-huh. miss, you will be seated, yeah. you'll be sitting at blue crab two. Which yes. is right next Excellent. to Red Crab too, like that kind of I love stuff. It. That's what I, I absolutely want. love it. I love it so much. I think that's so fucking funny. And I don't want I to tell it. any listeners that are thinking, "What the fuck are they doing with rhinestone lobsters and crabs?" You don't even tell know you. what. I'm not going to tell you, you why we're know. doing that for our wedding. You, you just got to figure that out, or make it up in your mind and let me know yes. in the comments <laughs> what you're envisioning my wedding's <laughs> yes. going to be like, because. I think on the outside, it seems pretty weird. (laughs) I just realized. How do you see these rhinestones, (laughs) tchotchkes (laughs) coming into play? For a wedding. Yeah, sound off, please. Bridal rhinestone tchotchkes. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, let's get this uh, super size episode started. And we got a family size episode. We got Miss doing her true crime story. All right. All right, are we ready? Born ready. Born ready. Okay. In September of 1964, Jeanette and Frank. Oh, I know the story. No, you don't. I'm just kidding. What are you doing? In September of 1964, Jeanette and Frank Puglisi decided to go to Mexico for a little R&R. After illegally crossing the border into Mexico, the couple mm-hmm. rented a hotel room at the Hotel Gin. Jeanette, always a stickler for safety, felt unsafe being in a foreign country, so she made sure to have her trusty pistol on her at all times. On September 18th, Jeanette left Frank at the hotel and went for a drink. At the bar, she met a Mexican-born American citizen, Francisco Francisco Ordones, and the two hit it off. After a few hours of drinking and flirting back and forth, Jeanette agreed to go back to his hotel room at the Hotel Lavada to view some photographs, which. Hello, however, would you like to see my etchings? <laughs> I know, That's super I know. Sus. It's so. That's so It's sus. so, it's so just like, I know it's, I know it's whatever year it is, 1964, but what do you mean? Photographs cannot be that enticing. Hey, do you uh, really, like want to come over and watch a movie? <laughs> No. Yeah, I'll Think- watch a movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Uh, however, as soon as they got back to the room, Ordones began making sexual advances and frightened her. Jeanette, never without her gun, whipped out her pistol to scare him off, but she ended up shooting him multiple Oops. times in Oops. the chest. Oops. Killing him. Oops. Oops. I literally wrote oops. <laughs> I mean, that's an ED. oops. <laughs> it's that a total oops. oops. It's all it is. It's just an oops. 
Um, hearing gunshots, hotel employee Enrique Rueda entered the room and Jeanette fired again, hitting oh Rueda God, in, the sho- in the shoulder. What? He then fled the room and somehow managed to lock her inside her room, which good on him. Um, and called the Weird police. though that hotel staff can yeah. do that. Terrifying. Yeah, I was going to say, terrifying. what hotel terrifying. is this? It's <laughs> not terrifying. something I'm never, I want. Never st- I'm never not sleeping at my house again. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, Unfortunately for Jeanette, the Mexican authorities didn't buy her story, believing instead that she went out that night for the purpose of robbing someone and chose Francisco Ordones as her mark. Jeanette and Frank were arrested and held for trial at uh, Palacio de la Cumberi, which, uh, apologies, which is also known as Mexico's Haunted Black Palace, which is very cool and a story for another what? time. Yeah. What? Yeah. Book me a room. Right? Um, I think now it's just like a, an administrative, like it, it's like a records building, but like it's very cool and like super haunted apparently. It contains haunted records. Right. Haunted yes. manila folders. <laughs> Those <laughs> microfiche docu- have ghosts in them. <laughs> <laughs> the ghosts are trapped in the microfiche. <laughs> Frank was charged with entering the country illegally and carrying an unlicensed gun. Um, he was acquitted and then deported back to the U.S. Jeanette, however, was convicted of murder on October 18th, 1965, and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment at the women's prison in Mexico City, where she got the nickname La Pistolera, the gunfighter. More badass than Jeanette deserves. It's so good. It's so good, and she absolutely doesn't deserve it. It's so weird, but good for her. She appealed her sentence. Apparently, she and the public thought that she was just going to get probation and then be deported like Frank. But sadly, they were mistaken. On appeal, the court agreed that Jeanette's sentence was incorrect and she was resentenced to 13 years, three additional years because she showed no remorse. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, that's what it's a always lot of people don't realize it's that tricky. there's sometimes it's some always risk. a chance. Yeah. There's some risk yeah. to don't. trying to overturn a conviction. Especially if you're going to piss no, off. No, nothing court. about Mexican law, but mm-hmm. there's uh, mm-hmm. a lot of times there's some risk involved. Now, on. December 7th, 1969, uh, Jeanette had Hi-oh. been there. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Jeanette had been there for about four years and she wasn't present for roll call at 5 p.m. But her absence wasn't noted until two hours later at seven when somebody finally decided to write down that she was not present. Also, there was a strange blackout at the prison that night. Suspiciously, is La Pistolera actually super cool? I'm hoping that she is. I mean, a little bit, yeah. Um, Suspiciously, around the time of Jeanette's disappearance, an investigation showed that a door had been left unsecured and a window had been jimmied open. Jeanette. Though it was noted at 7 p.m., Mexico City police were not notified of an escaped fugitive until 2 a.m. Yes. Love it. Let the bureaucracy work for you. Yes. Uh, A manhunt was put put together focusing on northern Mexican states due to authorities' belief that she may have been heading for the last known whereabouts of a former inmate whom she had grown close to. Mm. Um, And also, uh, they did a countrywide sweep of transport hubs and and then 
circled back and ended up back in Mexico City without ever finding her. But it was all in vain. By the end of December 1965, only two to three weeks later, police were out of leads and had given up the search for La Pistolera. Let's go back to the beginning. Ooh, we're Tarantinoing this story, huh? Yeah, a little. Because, like, little bit. I find the whole trip in the first place <laughs> to be interesting. It's it's an interesting story. All right, Sharon Elizabeth Hall was born on November thirtieth, nineteen thirty nine, in Independence, Missouri. Not a whole lot is known about her early life that I could find in my little research online. Some sources say she was raised by an alcoholic single mother, but others regularly referenced her parents, though, I mean, at the time it could have been a stepfather. But either way, in junior high, Sharon moved with her family to Washington State for a few years. But by the time she was 15, they were back in Independence, Missouri. Sharon was sent to hate Independence, and they were poor, and she really hated being poor. Not that anyone really digs it. Um, but she dreamed of being whisked away by a rich, handsome beau. Luckily for Sharon, she was smart and beautiful. In the summer of 1956, when she was 16, she met her fantasy beau, 22-year-old James Kinney, a student at Brigham Young University. Sexy. Mm -hmm. James was said to be a good, shy Mormon boy, and he was immediately taken by Sharon and the two very quickly engaged in a, quote, heated sexual relationship, Ooh. end quote. Hot. Ooh. Yeah. 1956. For big and Mormon love. Mormons, I mean. Ooh. Oh, that's some, like, Jody Arias shit. Mm. Oh, my God. It really is. <laughs> no. Oh, that puts a whole spin on this story. <gasps> oh, this is, like, her just, like. Does Sharon send pictures of her butthole? Ooh. No, but. Almost. No, no, it's actually not. It's actually not like that at all. She. Uh, I'm sorry. The almost made me go into sorry. coughing. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no butthole shots here. But no um, butthole shots. Release okay, the butthole cut. They have. They have. Release the butthole <laughs> Like it's. It's still 1956. I don't think we were doing mm. butthole shots yet. Um. Maybe we were. You know. Who knows? I think someone was. Someone was into it. Someone's always been into it. But by the time summer ended, James had to go back to Provo, leaving Sharon behind in no good Independence, Missouri. The couple pledged their undying love for each other and promised to write. Though two sources I saw actually said that James broke up with her and promised to write. So it's a, it's a little blurry. And and that's kind of how it is on a lot of these sources. Like they're mostly similar, but there's a little bit of conflicting detail. There's such a specifically unsettling iciness to breaking up and also promising yeah. to write. Yeah, we can't <laughs> be together, but I'll still keep haunting you. It's by terrible. letter. Yeah, by letter. Don't worry. I don't want to be with you, but I won't leave you alone. I won't let you forget me. Don't worry. Um, uh, you don't really need to feel bad for Sharon. Um, you're going to find out why. Okay. Unfortunately, not long after returning to BYU, James received a life-changing letter from Sharon. Sharon was pregnant and James was the father. What? How? Isn't that 
Isn't that exciting? Mm -hmm. Isn't that incredible? Oh, God. Mazel Good news. Oh, good news. I bet he loved it. James was a fine, upstanding Mormon man and took leave from BYU to return to Independence, and the couple were married on October 18th, 1956, by my own calculations, about four months after they met. That's deeply Mormon. So, <laughs> it's so, it's so much. Later, like investigators- Mormon teens will propose to each other in a friendlies. It's just really- Oh, I know, I know. Later, investigators and or journalist, it was not clear, found out that on their marriage license, Sharon wrote that she was 18 years old and a widow. What? Huh. Yeah, she was 16. Um, not a widow. <sighs> At the time, Sharon told people that she was married when she lived in Washington State to a man who died in a car accident not long after they were married. Everything I found said that this was a lie. There's no proof she was ever married before. And when she was known to the public, when this issue, when this issue would come up in the public later, she would refuse to address the marriage license at all. Okay. Um, all right. Who knows? We, we really don't know anything more than that. It's just really odd. It's a weird lie. She's a mysterious teen with secrets. <laughs> Definitely. And now she's married. She's a married, mysterious teen with secrets. The Kinneys moved to Provo, hoping James could finish his degree in electrical engineering. And Sharon's dreams were coming true. She'd gotten out of independence and married a man who had the potential of making a lot of money. Mm. In Utah, okay. they both took jobs. James as an electrical engineer and Sharon as a babysitter and a shopkeeper. But by the time the semester came to an end, Sharon had miscarried. That baby never existed. James put a permanent hold on school and they moved back to Independence, Missouri. She and I fake don't... baby trapped him and then she still had to go back to Independence? I don't know why they still went back. I don't really get that. Maybe they were having, I don't know if it was, I know it wasn't Sharon's choice because she mm -hmm. would have never chosen that, but uh, I don't know if it was to be closer to family or if I it was know. if it was less expensive or they just couldn't afford it any or, or what. I don't know. Independence, Missouri is famously a place that you are supposed to leave from. Yeah, it's you literally go on the, the Oregon Trail from Independence. It's the launching off point. And like, don't go past April or you'll yeah. eat no, your friends. Oh, yeah, no, you'll have to eat people you love. Just don't do it. <laughs> Most researchers assume Sharon lied about the pregnancy to lock James down, and she did get pregnant soon thereafter, but, I mean, it's it's possible that she did have a miscarriage or or she made it up. Honestly, after doing all of this research, it points to her absolutely making it up. It's absolutely something she would do. <laughs> but there's nothing to support the claim either way, but it's definitely within her wheelhouse. What Sharon wants, Sharon gets. Sharon. Whatever yeah. Sharon wants. It's Sharon's world. <laughs> so after moving back to Missouri, uh, Sharon underwent the process of becoming a Mormon. Um, and the couple had a second formal wedding in the Salt Lake Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and whether the first pregnancy was real or not, the couple had their first baby, Dana, in the fall of 1957. James was working as an electrical engineer at night, and the couple lived in a rented home next door to James's parents. So Yikes. just really living, just really doing it good. 
Sharon reportedly loved to spend lavishly and well beyond their means. She was the kind of the prototype material girl. I don't know why I wrote that, but that's what I wrote. Um, no, I love it. If she if she wanted something, she had to have it. And it wasn't just material items. It was men, too. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, sorry. I asked Queen Sharon. That's shitty. No, it's she okay. Sucks. It's okay. <laughs> there's a little bit. Listen, there's a little bit to like about her. You don't hate everything about her but i mean like, she's most the hustle hard. is it's real kind of cool it's a little impressive she's but she she's living in a time she's living before her time yeah she's <laughs> she's getting hers in the confines of how she can yeah but let's and not forget that she the men around her yeah, but she put herself in the situation. Let's she fully put that. herself in yeah, this she situation. She didn't like she didn't get trapped in this situation. She fought. No, she trapped James. She, yeah, no, she fought for this. And then this quote was in a handful of sources I found. It says, James worked the night shift at Bendix, and his wife initially filled her days with shopping and later with other men. <gasps> Yeah. Scandalous. By by the (laughs) 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 the time the couple had their second child, Troy, Sharon was having an ongoing sexual relationship with a friend from high school, John Boltiz. I think that's it's B O L it's B O L D I Z S. Okay. Boltiz. Boltiz. Boltiz? John, but he wasn't the only one. And also by this time, Sharon had demanded that they build their own house, which they did. They had what was described sometimes as a rancher and sometimes as a bungalow um, built in her favorite place, Independence, Missouri. Mm. And they had just started to settle in as a family of four. Quote, By 1959, Sharon had grown bored of James and his plain vanilla lifestyle and took several lovers. Her most frequent partner was her former high school beau, John Boldiz, who, as an ice cream vendor, had access to a lot more flavors. End (gasps) quote. Oh, wow. That was a quote from the newspaper in, like, 1960. Okay? This... This is like that was some gay writing that article. That's some seriously queer. Some queen was just like, "This is what I live for." Hot goss of the town. <laughs> yeah, oh. seriously, it's the only way. It's all we had. Sharon was either terrible at hiding her spending and sleeping around, or she just didn't give a fuck. But by 1960, James was very aware of both, and he was contemplating divorce. But it was 1960, and James was a good Mormon boy. So on March 18th, 1960, he went to his parents' house for guidance. Okay. He told told them Sharon would agree to a divorce if he gave her the house, the kids, and $1,000. So maybe just a little more than half. Um, (laughs) Not to mention the fact that she is the cause of the marital problems. I don't know what you're talking Um, about, miss. (laughs) (laughs) While they were very sympathetic to their son's situation, the Kinneys were devout Mormons and told James he needed to work out their issues. And they were strongly against any talk of divorce. We don't know how Sharon took the news, but what happened next, is um, I don't think she took it well. Okay. Okay. On March 19th, 1960, the next day, Sharon, now 20 years old, called the police around 5.30 p.m. 
Sharon said that she had heard a gunshot coming from the direction of their bedroom. When she ran back to see, what she found was her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Dana, sitting on the bed next to her father. She was holding James's high-standard twenty-two target pistol, and James was bleeding from a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Mm. Oh. Though initially he survived, he was DOA by the time the ambulance had gotten him to the hospital. Oh, he was yeesh. 25. Oh, oh, no. The next day, Sharon was interviewed by detectives. She said James was in the bedroom cleaning the pistol while she was in the bathroom putting on makeup. James had laid down for a nap, and Dana, their two-year-old daughter, wandered into the bedroom and picked up the gun. She fired one shot and killed her father. Mm. Chief of Police James R. Browning said at the time, quote, I thought she was very credible, and she was very distraught, and that it was very genuine. Did it? Then wow. And then, for me, it became a problem of, if the little girl did it, what a shame. What a terrible tragedy. Hmm. I would love to fucking get that detective into a multi-level marketing scam because that dude is a fucking sucker. He'll work at it. Don't worry. I'm sure he will. <laughs> I mean, toddlers do get a hold of weapons that are not um, properly secured and, like, do... But in the head. So this is the problem with Sharon's, with this story, is it's a little believable. There is a kernel of truth in every single thing. So So she is just cunning enough to know what she's doing. And she's, though the chief was convinced, detectives questioned Sharon's story. Was it even possible could a two-year-old even pull the trigger? From what I understand, a twenty-two is a small caliber weapon. So I know you don't have to be super strong, but I mean, a baby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quote, quote, we were skeptical about the little girl, but unfortunately, they were the only witnesses there. There was no one else to talk to except Sharon Kinney. James? So blame your own oh, it's so toddler. It's so messed up. <laughs> it is so fucked up. And then to have her grow up thinking she killed her father. Oh, God. Yeah, it's dark. That's ice cold, Sharon. I know. It's so bad. This is like... I'm uh, no longer we are We are recording <laughs> on Mother's Day, and she is just like the anti-mother. Like, just yes. anything that you're going to do as a mother, take, look at this and just do the opposite, the opposite of what Sharon of that. would do. Whatever Sharon would do, run the other way a thousand miles an hour. Um, we were, James Hayes, the author of the Sharon Kinney story said, quote, all they could do was buy into whatever it was Sharon was telling them. She was very convincing and it's not to their discredit. When Sharon told you something, you were just expected to believe it. She was that good. Wow. Damn. Yeah. It's like a Trumpian level of yeah, confident that's a, lying. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was when I was doing this. There's it's that kind of that kind of confidence about it. Uh, from Murderpedia, quote, police were unable to recover any fingerprints from the well-oiled grip of the pistol, and a paraffin test for gunshot residue was not performed on Dana or Sharon. Multiple people, including family and neighbors, told police that James had often allowed Dana to play with his guns. 
And in a test by investigators, Dana was able to pull the trigger on her own on a gun matching the same one that killed her father. With absolutely no evidence to the contrary, investigators ruled it an accidental homicide. Wow, accidental. And they threw that kid in the clink. Absolutely. <laughs> she was she was put in for life. Throw away the key. Right. Menace to society. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This oh, she was oh, God, can you imagine? Two and a half years old. I mean, there's it's kids so that dark. age who are locked oh, up and have to go to immigration court. Yeah. And then get oh, oh I'm very – yeah, I know. It's, it's gross. gross. It's so gross. But what's really interesting is Sharon uh, tried multiple times to get the gun back from the police. But very <laughs> unsurprisingly, the police denied her request and kept it in custody. Um, but Sharon needed a gun. And she needed a 22. Okay? Yes. So Sharon got a friend yes. to buy her a 22 pistol. Okay? And but here's the thing. When the friend told her that he put the gun in Sharon's name, she freaked out a little bit. She didn't want that. <laughs> Sharon did not want this gun in her name. And she she demanded he go and re-register it under someone else's name. Anyone yeah. but hers. If I wanted it under my name, I would have bought I would the have gun gone, myself. That's exactly it. <laughs> Typical man. And in and in a way, I can almost see it. If it wasn't this exact thing, I can sort of see it. Mm-hmm. I could have just done this myself. Okay. Anyway, so what do y'all think? Sharon or Dana? Dana. I'm Sharon. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, with her name cleared, Sharon was able to collect her $29,000 insurance payout. Oh, which, my God, Guess Sharon. how much it is today? Oh, God. I would it's say $230,000. Seven- Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's killing cash. Oh, yeah. That's a, this is exactly what she'd always wanted. Uh, and what's a single gal to do with all that cash? Um, buy a convertible, of course. Mm. Um, on April 18th, 1960, about two months later, Sharon went and bought herself a cute little blue Thunderbutt. A cute little blue Thunderbutt Thunderbutt convertible. (laughs) Thunderbutt. Um, about two months later, Sharon bought herself a cute little blue Thunderbird convertible and that wasn't all. Sharon decided she was going to keep the salesman as well. Ooh. Walter Jones specifically. Oh, my God. Can you do that? She's, she she's can. Blue up. Cantrelling. Yeah. Yeah. She's fucking oops, Blue Cantrelling when she <laughs> killed her fucking husband. Classic. Yes. There goes the dreams for you to uh walter was a marine corps veteran who had recently just moved back to independence from the west coast with his 23 year old wife patricia and their two kids Mm. however walter's marital status never stopped him from fucking other women in fact cheating on his wife was sort of a hobby of his so when hot and newly rich sharon hits on him he was into it oh yeah classy walter oh yeah real good uh, the affair was going well for Sharon and she started to look at Walter as a second husband. 
as a prospect oh. for a second husband. Hmm. She wanted him to take care of her, and he made decent money selling those cars. Never mind his wife and kids. What Sharon wants, Sharon gets. Whatever Sharon wants, Sharon gets. <laughs> but shockingly, when she floated this idea by Walter, he was not at all into it. Mm. Yeah, no. Because he's a fucking main chick, side chick guy. Yeah, no. He he really has no interest in not being married to his wife. He's yeah. fine with the way things are. <laughs> um, Sharon and Walter were planning to go away to Washington State together. But after she floated this by, Walter really wasn't that into going away. So mm-hmm. he dipped out and she had to go with her brother. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. so pathetic Sharon it's so upsetting Go and that was in May trip with your brother yeah maybe just get a refund I don't know well th- now on May 25th 1960 Walter and Sharon got together after Sharon got back from the trip when Sharon dropped a bomb she was pregnant oh. and Walter was the father when it works it works now Sharon's life will be perfect Walter will leave Patricia. She'll have a father for her kids, Uh someone to pay for her very expensive tastes. Uh And Walter will have Sharon win, win. Yeah. Only. That's a great trade off. I think it's perfect. I mean, everybody is winning except maybe his wife and kids, but minor detail. Only that's not really what happened. Oh. Tell me it ain't Des- so. Oh, despite Sharon's brilliant plan, Walter wasn't going to do his part. He was supposed to be thrilled and overjoyed at the prospect of their new baby and mm-hmm. finally ready to divorce Patricia. But instead, Walter refused to leave his wife and ended their affair. Yeah. <sighs> Can yeah. you believe it? I can absolutely believe it. (laughs) Walter, quote, I told her to wait and see what happens. I told her it was all over between us. Wait and see what happens. He just called her bluff. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see if that's a real baby. So this is a beautiful quote from the Kansas City Star. Naked and screaming, Sharon followed Walter's cart into the street, cursing and threatening to get even with him as neighbors watched the carryings-on of a woman who had just lost her husband less than three months earlier. Wow. Oh, my God. So this is a month after knowing Walter, because two months after James, she got the fucking convertible. She's only known him. She's known him less than a month. Of course he's not going to leave. Oh, my God. The timing is all fucked. She hasn't laid the foundation yet. Please understand. Do you not remember? She and James were pregnant and married within four months. Yeah, that's because he was like a friggin' Mormon twink who wanted to get his dick wet. Yep. Yeah. And and he – and Walter's just like, I'm a married man in the 50s. Isn't this what we do? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's a girl to do when she's wrongfully denied what's hers? She just she she figures it out. Um, mm-hmm. The following Make day on uh, the following day on May 26, Patricia Jones received a call from a stranger. The stranger said she was the sister of a woman who her husband Walter was having an affair with. The woman wanted to meet Patricia in person, and she agreed. Oh no, Patricia! 
When Walter got home from work that night, Patricia wasn't home. She wasn't home by morning either, and that's when Walter filed a missing persons report and began calling people he might have thought uh, he thought might have seen his wife. Mm. A friend of Patricia's who carpooled together with her to work told Walter that Patricia reported receiving a phone call that day from an unnamed woman who wanted to meet with her. She had asked the carpool driver to drop her off a street corner, off drop her off in a street corner in Independence, which he had done. The occupants of the carpool reported seeing a woman waiting for Patricia in a car. I think it was a green Ford. No one recognized the woman, but they provided a description of her to Walter. Based on the description of the carpoolers, Walter called Sharon to see what the fuck was up. Yeah. Walter asked her if he had seen or spoken to his wife the day before, and Sharon admitted that she had. She told Walter that she met Patricia and told her all about their affair. Mm-hmm. Sharon said that she dropped Patricia off near her home. She saw her speaking to an unknown man in a car. Walter that wasn't is satisfied. Such horseshit. I know. Yeah, I dropped her off near, but not at her home. Near and then, home, and she talked to a guy. Wouldn't you know it? An unknown man came up to her. I never I seen didn't him. shoot out Patricia. I'd never seen him before. Uh, Walter wasn't satisfied. Believe it or not. And Sharon agreed to meet with him to talk more. He demanded she give him more details about where his wife was. He knew, he knew she had something to do with it. And he admitted to holding a key to her throat threateningly. Which is like, okay, Walter. I mean, it's, I guess it's threatening. I mean, he was a strong guy. He could have done something. You'd really, you'd really, but you know, sometimes. Yeah, so that was in, like, the newspapers, but then some sites, like, say that it was a knife, which I just don't believe. I feel like that would be much more uh, prevalent well, than Walter key. seems like kind of a doof. I think he's a key <laughs> He just guy. put his keys up to her. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't scary enough. Uh, she didn't give him any more information, claiming that was all she knew. Reports differ, but either that night or the next morning, Sharon called her old pal John Baldiz, who, by the way, I may have failed to mention, she'd been fucking the entire time. Oh. Yes. Classic Sharon. Yeah. This is just Sharon's witty. It's classic Sharon. She calls John and asks him if he can help her look for Patricia. The two drove around. I'm so around. concerned about my friend Patricia. I'm so concerned about my the man I want to leave his wife for that wife is, is she's missing. The two drove around independence looking for Patricia, but came up empty. But then one of them had a good idea. Some reports it was Sharon, some report it was John, but either way, why don't they go check out the lover's lane? They hadn't been out there yet. Almost immediately after they parked, Sharon noticed something in the grass and asked Mm. John if he could go, go look at it. John, go look at that. James Hayes wrote, quote, she makes this young man get out and look, and it scares the living bejesus out of him because there is the salesman's wife laying shot dead in the grass. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you go be the one who actually finds her so it doesn't look exactly like I just led you to her? What a fucking asshole, Sharon. Such a jerk. (laughs) She was really ahead of her time. God, she sucks. 
I know, so bad. Patricia had been shot four times with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Huh. The fatal wound was a gunshot to her head, entering near her mouth at an upward t- trajectory. And she also had one through-and-through bullet um, in her abdomen and two shots to her shoulders on a downward trajectory. So very weird. There were powder burns on the hemline of her skirt, which told investigators that the gun had been fired from close range at least once. And then um, initial reports uh, placed her time of death at 9 p.m. the night before. After leading John directly to Patricia's body, Sharon had one last request. Um, could you not tell the police that she was with him when he tells them about the body, maybe? God damn it, Sharon. But according to James Hayes, quote, straight away he told them, well, I wasn't out there by myself. I was out there with Mrs. Sharon Kinney. And the name just sets off all kinds of bells and whistles in the investigator's head because they remember mm-hmm. her story from just a couple months before that. Mm-hmm. This is months ago. This was three months ago. No, this was this was two and a half months ago. Jesus. Like this is this is crazy. Sharon, John, and Walter were all questioned on May 29th, 1960. The boys each gave written statements, which included admissions that they were both sleeping with Sharon, and they both agreed to take lie detector tests, which they later passed. Sharon gave an oral statement to police, but refused to give a written statement. Frankly smart. Don't give written statements to the police. Don't give oral statements to the police. Don't talk to the police. Listen to your friendly neighborhood public defender. Okay? Just don't. It's not legal advice. police. It's not legal advice. It's just common sense. It's just common sense. Shut the fuck up. Just stop talking. All right. <laughs> that was part of the scenario that was not directed at you, Edie, <laughs> by the way. Oh, no, totally. Totally. Okay. All right. It's all good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sharon and John were both questioned a second time, and police attempted to question Sharon's brother, Eugene. Um, but he came to the station and then just refused to speak. He wouldn't say anything. He's the smartest one in the bunch. He's right. Investigators made repeated attempts to locate the murder weapon and the bullet that had passed through Patricia's body. They sifted the dirt at the crime scene and deployed a group of Boy Scouts to search for the missing gun. Oh my god. Which like 1960 is just wild, okay? Like, oh, there's a murder weapon miss there's a murder weapon missing. There's only one group of sons of bitches we can rely on in times like these, gentlemen. Yeah. Bring me the scouts. Why? Why why are we sending children to look Listen, and this is it's the problem. Terrible. This is why the story about the child shooting the gun is so believable. We were just giving children guns constantly. Maybe not. Yeah, it was a really weird time to be a kid. Dangerous. (laughs) Just really dangerous. A twenty-two caliber rifle slug was eventually found buried in the ground where Patricia's body had been, providing evidence that at least some of the wounds had been sustained at the place where she was found. Investigators went so far as to drag the bottom of nearby bodies of water for the gun, assumed to be a twenty-two caliber pistol, but it was never found. Patricia's funeral was on May 31st, 1960, Mm -hmm. and at 11 p.m. the same day, Sharon was arrested for murder of Patricia Jones. 
That same day, later that morning, Jackson County Sheriff requested that prosecutors consider a second charge of murder for the death of her late husband, James Kinney. And they were very happy to oblige. Yeah, a little two for one. Yeah, why not? We got her in there. Sharon we was We're going to just keep blaming the toddler. But... <laughs> so much easier. Sharon was eventually released on $20,000 bond. But what about That's poor pretty Walter? pretty high bond for the time. No, it really is. That's a crazy high bond. Remember twenty nine thousand. Yeah, twenty nine was like two hundred thirty. Two hundred thirty. Crazy yeah. high bond. It's crazy. High. Well, she'd killed essentially two people. Allegedly. Alle- okay. Allegedly, you're right. Who am I? But what about poor Walter? What happened to him? What did happen to him? Well, Walter left town after the funeral and immediately remarried. Like his wife had just been murdered by his mistress and barely tw- barely two months later, he was married. Oh, Walter sucks too. And I bet Sharon was fucking steamed. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't pleased. Fun fact though, 10 months after her husband was murdered and eight months after Patricia was murdered, Sharon gave birth to a baby girl named Marla Christine on January 16th, 1961. Huh. So could have been Walters, could have been other guys. Could so have maybe, been somebody Maybe she else's. wasn't lying to Walter. Maybe she was pregnant. And maybe she wasn't lying the first time either. Maybe. That's a big maybe. Big maybe. But in mid-June 1961, about a year after Patricia's murder, Sharon went to trial. The prosecution was unable to firmly establish that Kenny owned or had once held the weapon that killed Patricia. Yeah, Though both, it's not in her name. It certainly is not. It's not in her Though name. Though both Sharon's known pistol and the one that fired the bullets that killed Patricia were twenty two caliber, it, they couldn't prove that it was the same gun. Yeah. The man who sold the pistol to Sharon's friend led police to a tree that contained what he claimed were bullets he had fired from that pistol. However, when the bullets were extracted from the tree trunk, tests showed that the bullets did not match a twenty-two caliber. So mm-hmm. he tried. He tried to help yeah. Sharon. Um, well, and also he was just like really in, bad at it. Bullet match in general is like not extremely oh, reliable. No, but, but also like bullet match in the sixties. <laughs> no, I mean no. But I think it was like an obvious error. In yeah, this case. yeah. The trial lasted 10 days, with the defense focused on breaking down the state's claims of motive and means, arguing that Sharon had no reason to kill Patricia and that the 22 caliber pistol she was alleged to have owned had never been proven to be a murder weapon, mainly because it was never found. The Solid. Mm-hmm, the Party. all-male jury... Yeah. The all-male jury deliberated for six and a half hours before coming to a unanimous verdict. What do we think? Not guilty. Kevin? Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Hmm. Not guilty. Obviously. Yeah. This is Sharon and Sharon awesome is perfect. What Sharon wants, Sharon gets. Mm-hmm. Sharon Absolutely. wanted her not guilty. Yep. Absolutely. Quote. Sharon had control of the courtroom. She had control of the jury. She had control of the spectators. Everybody was focused on Sharon Kinney. Even to the point where on the second day after the trial started, Sharon came moseying in late, fashionably late, probably in her mind. The trial went on for about 10 days. The jury came back with a verdict. 
and the guilty erupted, the courtroom erupted in cheers. Jurors wow. came out of the juror box and went over and got Sharon's autograph. Oh my people, God. People in the audience got up and got her autograph as well. Fucking oh what? You know, Mr. Bundy, in another life, you could have been a lawyer yourself. Oh, God, I think about that. I think about it so often. I think about it all the time. That's exactly what we're doing here. People are such fucking suckers. But also, like, the state's case wasn't... It was very weak. I mean, mean, in their defense, there's really... I mean, they couldn't have really done anything. There was... There were no witnesses. There was no weapon. They did what they could. Yeah. But our girl... Our girl couldn't relax just yet because there was still the pesky matter of her late dead husband. And the prosecution had a star witness, John Baldiv. Apparently, before James died, Sharon had offered John $1,000 to kill her husband. He Mm. thought it was a joke at the time. Um, But now, maybe not. Jury selection began. And now, Edie, I'm looking at you for this, okay? (laughs) Jury selection started and it took 14 hours. It hmm. was from 9 a.m. until midnight. Yeah. They could have broken that up into a second day. But 14 <laughs> hour 14 hour jury like a, the effect, never, effectively like a multi-day jury yeah. selection for a murder trial that's yeah. like pretty notorious. Is that normal? Yeah. It is. I okay. mean, it's not necessarily, you know, normal is not relative, but it's not in it's doesn't shock me that Oh, okay. Well, jury good. selection would doesn't necessarily shock me that jury selection would take a long time, especially if it's like it's not the biggest town in the world. No, they're in Independence, Missouri or yeah, Kansas you, City, I think it might be. You might find some people who like know the folks involved such that oh, they yeah, for sure. would be disqualified. Yada 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 yada. All right, cool. I, I literally wrote a note here, ask Edie if this is okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a long time, but I don't think it's crazy. I mean, that it went on until midnight, like... Yeah, that was what... I'd say, yeah, just go to a second day, but then also you want to... You don't want them to go home and, like, talk about it, look stuff up. Do you not sequester them? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can see... That's a long time. No, I get it. I get it. But, like, I just know the judges I work with and just absolutely not. I would just never fucking tear my face off. Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I would no. 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 Um da 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 da. Okay, the prosecution's case rested largely on the contention that Sharon had been so interested in seeing her husband removed that she was willing to pay for his murder, supported by John's grand jury testimony. John was their star witness here, remember? Um only he weakened his own testimony on the stand by claiming Sharon's offer to pay him $1,000 to kill her husband could have just been a joke. So the prosecution was forced to attack their own star witness's credibility. Additional testimony reported that the Kinney's marriage was rocky and on the brink of divorce. And at the time of his death, Sharon's adultery had been the cause of the marital upset. And Sharon knew she stood to collect $29,000, but only if she remained his wife. Mm. So the defense focused on the fact that all of the evidence was circumstantial and really hammered home that the previous investigation determined James' death was obviously accidental. And the jury was... I mean, that's a good fact. That's a good I know. It's a, really good pe- it's a really good defense item. It's yeah. very good. 
And the jury was obligated, obviously, to assume Sharon was innocent, despite their opinion, whatever that may be, of her moral character. Because um, she was just, because she had a lot of lovers. The defense also tacked the reliability of John's testimony, calling him a, quote, poor mixed up kid who would sign anything, end quote. Yeah, what are they going to say? They got to yeah. say something about I it. I know. Poor John. <laughs> yeah, sorry, bud. <laughs> You're going to take this one for us. Uh, Sharon said it'd be okay. Sharon's yeah, attorney. Yeah, Sharon will do you right. Sharon's attorney also presented testimony from witnesses supporting the theory that two and a half year old Dana, Dana, excuse me, shot her father, including statements that gun had been regularly left in Dana's reach at home and that Dana was able to pull the triggers on toy guns with stiffer trigger pulls than the weapon that had killed her father. Um, and Dana had often been observed pretending to fire guns in play. And listen, I know why they're doing this, but just from 2022, this is a terrible defense. No, no, no. It's obviously her because she just plays with loaded guns all the time. That's that's what's there. It's what's there. The defense is that the daughter did it. You have to, you know? Absolutely. Your no, best no, piece of it. evidence is the, no, the and it's state's a good, initial conclusion absolutely. that the daughter did it. And you've got evidence that she plays with absolutely guns all the time? Too. No. Bring that up all day. Absolutely. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying from 2022, thinking about it for like presenting this argument now, like how insane it sounds out of context. <laughs> it's a, just, it's, it's, it's a dark argument. <laughs> but alas, Sharon was convicted on January 11th, 1962 and sentenced to life in prison. Despite the verdict, though, James's family continued to believe Sharon, telling reporters on the day of the verdict, quote, we can't find it in our hearts to say anything bad about her, and mm. we, we don't feel that she committed murder, end quote. Kenny herself told Dumb reporters guns. that she felt the verdict was a mistake and, she and that she regretted her previous enthusiasm for having a woman on the jury. Sh Sharon appealed... The verdict, this, yeah, the verdict, alleging that the jury based its verdict on surmise and speculation rather than substantial evidence. The motion also listed series of procedural errors that had taken place before and during mm -hmm. the trial, mm -hmm. including juror taking incomplete notes, attorneys of both sides of the case having disputed John's testimony, and an incorrect number of potential jurors being provided for selection. The motion right. was denied, but appealed to Missouri, the Missouri Supreme Court. However, in March 1963, reversed her conviction and ordered a new trial based on the fact that her defense was denied adequate preemptory challenges during jury selection. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, so that's a big deal. And then eventually in May, Sharon was released on $25,000 bond with no restrictions. Um, bond posted by her brother <laughs> at the request of the state the supreme court of missouri agreed to reconsider its decision and in october of 1963 the reconsideration uncovered even more reasons why the new trial was necessary and sharon was reunited with her kids and moved in with her mother hmm. so now the trial of james kinney part two Jury selection began on March 23rd, 1964, and again, was a, an additional 12 hours. Yeah, I mean, they're um, going to be extra careful this time around. Oh, I know. 
Due to the notoriety of the case, the jury was immediately sequestered. But a few days later, a mistrial was declared after it emerged that a law partner of the prosecutor, Lawrence Gepford, was once retained by one of the jurors. Yeah. So, the trial of James Kinney, part three. Third time's a charm, right? Uh, uh, always. Uh, totally. I've always found that for my trials. Mm. Sharon's fourth murder trial and third trial for the murder of her husband started on June 29th, 1964. This time the prosecution was seeking the death penalty and he intended to death qualify the jury, a process which where the prosecutor um, preemptor, preemptorily challenges any juror who automatically opposes the death penalty, which again, stretched out jury selection for about 12 hours. Yeah. John stuck to his muddy ass story. When Sharon asked him to kill her husband for a thousand dollars, he thought she was joking and he panicked when he heard about the death of Patricia. But this time he added that after James's death, Sharon had asked him not to tell authorities about the thousand dollar murder plan. Oh my God. Um, I mean, joke. <laughs> it's just so funny. Uh, oh my but God, Sharon, I know, but for the first time in any of her trials, Sharon herself took the stand on the last day. Ooh. Um, uh, to issue a categorical a categorical denial of all charges. And she was as charming as always. The all-male jury was deadlocked seven to five in favor of acquittal, resulting in a second mistrial. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> oh, that boy. risky move of testifying paid off. Sure did. And and in this case, she is someone you would put on the stand. Because she just mesmer, especially maybe not now, but especially during this time, she Mm -hmm. like, there was something about like, like I looked her up and listen, she's, she's very pretty, but like, she's not like, you know, shockingly beautiful that would like mesmerize you. There has to be something about her that just had to be about her presence. That thing. Mm -hmm. Someone just has Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And that, and she has it. Um, now the fourth trial for the murder of James Kinney was set for October of 1964, but in September, Sharon just needed a break. Oh my God. So she and her new beau, Frank Puglisi. Yes. Traveled to Mexico. Yes. With Sharon using the name Janet Puglisi. Mm. Yes. And they had to get that little R&R we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just needed a vacation. They needed uh, a vacation. And just to like cross the border without letting anybody know that they're crossing the border. And it's just fun. Mm-hmm. Mexico's a great vacation spot. Vacation. It's all we're doing. It's just a vacation. Um, so La Pistolera is actually uh Miss Sharon Kinney. And-, and she couldn't fucking help herself. She had to kill another dude. <laughs> She couldn't help herself. She was just like, I need to kill. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But, I mean, she escaped. And it was later determined that the pistol she used to kill Francisco Ordones was the same twenty-two caliber pistol that killed Patricia Jones. Oh, my God. She oh, didn't even get a different wow. gun. Sharon. Nope. But because of double jeopardy laws, Sharon will never be able to be charged. That's true. Even if she was mm-hmm. ever found. That's true. It was the state's fault for not finding the gun. Yep. 
They didn't find yeah. the fucking gun. I mean, it, she obviously still had it. She had it years yeah. later in Mexico. Yeah. Um, Fuck them. Yeah. Initial they police didn't prove spe- it. No, they didn't. Initial police speculation was that Sharon had bribed guards to look the other way while she escaped the prison. But honestly, uh, further questioning of the guards in the administration showed that it was most likely just oversight because they were very lax and they were way understaffed. So I didn't notice she was gone for a while. (laughs) I noticed that she was gone, but I didn't really do anything for like a lot of hours, seven of them. The news stories at the time reported numerous theories about Sharon's escape, escape, including that she had bribed prison guards, that she may have enlisted the help of a supposed boyfriend who was a Mexico City policeman, that her mother had been involved in the escape, that a former Mexican secret agent had assisted her escape, (laughs) that Sharon may have disguised herself as a man to pull off her escape, which she could probably do. Yeah. Um, Honestly, though, more modern theories, and I don't know what this is based off of, but Modern theories speculate that the family of Francisco helped her escape and then murdered her, which I kind of like. I don't like it. That's dark, but you know what I mean. Oh, I think that's pretty fun. You know, I mean, fun escape. is relative. It's fun and in, in fun a really, for weirdos in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, fun in like a I don't know, like yeah, pretend it's dark. not real way. Yeah. Um. Let's see. But investigators speculated that she had probably crossed the border into Guatemala, mooting the purpose of that Mexican manhunt, which is why it was shut down so quickly. But they knew that she was fluent in Spanish after years in Mexican prison, and she could therefore be getting along rather well in nearly any Spanish-speaking country in the world. Yeah. There's no proof to support any theory that she is living or that she isn't. At the time of her fourth trial for killing James, Sharon was in a Mexican prison. And as such, a warrant was issued for her arrest in October 1964. And it is still outstanding 57 years later. (laughs) Almost 57 years later. Nobody's quashed that fucking warrant. Making it the oldest outstanding murder warrant in the Kansas City area. (laughs) Sharon's status is also in the Mexican system. Um, They haven't closed the case there. Though authorities have pointed out that at the time of her escape, escaping prison was not a crime in Mexico. Um, so if she were recaptured, she would just have to finish her 13 year sentence. Good. Love it. Yeah. If Sharon somehow made the perfect, perfect ex- escape and is still alive, she would be 82 years old today. <laughs> dun, dun. And this bitch you know what? might. I hope she's, I kind of she hope she's might. out I there hope still she scamming is. and just, killing. Just, yeah. Just, just living off of just piss and vinegar and other people's money. Just pickpocketing God. her way through the Southern hemisphere. Like, she absolutely sucks, but... But there's also I, just a something about her. There, there's something <laughs> about you, Sharon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what an asshole. I love she's that like, story. She's like the asshole. You're just like, God damn. Like she, but she, she did it. Like, you she got, did like it. She, like, regardless of what happened after she left that prison, she, she escaped prison and was never heard from again. Damn. Excellent. Absolutely I think it, I mean, it's so wild. I love it. That is La Pistolera. I God, I, I, I hate that I love her. I know. I feel so, it's so conflicting. I was um, looking up the Wikipedia as you were talking, and I'm like, there's no, mm-hmm. no one's played her in a movie. Like, her story's not been no. told. 
This is such a good movie, too. Yeah. This would be a great movie. Yeah. Who would be? I mean, I have not seen any pictures of Sharon, but. Um, like, a Nicole Kidman could do it. Um, I know okay. Nicole Kidman type could do it. Yeah. 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 Somebody but who she's can a do like old. a wide-eyed thing. Yeah. She's a little too old now, but mm. because she's what? Only in her 20s. Oh my God. When this is happening. Remember, she was only born in 1939. So all of, she was disappeared. She was escaped and gone by the time she was 30. Oh my God. In 1969, she was gone. Fucking rules. God, she sucks and she rules. Yeah. She had a whole fucking weird ass, terrible life somewhere. She did it. Oh my God. Like, yeah. I can see, I can see like a young Christina Ricci. I can see like. Definitely. Somebody um, who's pretty enough to scam dumb men pretty well. I don't. She's not like drop dead gorgeous. So really, anything. Yeah, could yeah. Her. She's like pretty enough to get her way, but not pretty enough to like stand out. Like maybe like a a really good character actor. Mm-hmm. Like a um. Ooh, okay, that's a good idea. Ooh, like if Judy Greer were a little bit younger. Like yeah. thirteen going on thirty era Judy Greer. <laughs> yes, that would be good. All right. Well, thanks, Miss. Thanks for yeah. telling us. No, thank you for letting me. Talk that story to had you. twists and turns and um, an ending. Beginnings and endings. It doesn't and really end. I loved no, it. The it the like. End. Let's go back to nineteen thirty nine. Love. I like doing it. that. I wanted yeah, to, I had it. I had it just completely chronological, but I was like, this is, this is fun. But I was like, it's a special episode. Let's get oh. a little twisty turny in it. Yes. Well, hey, hey. Well, well who's, well, who's, who's up next? next? It's the guest. It's our guest oh. star. Guest, guest star. Friends. Friends. Mm-hmm. I have one of my favorite stories for you. I'm so excited. That you might know already, even if you do. Oh, even if I do. It's a a great story that's worth a retell. I'd like to tell you all about Jack Parsons and the Scarlet Woman. Yeah. I've never heard (laughs) this. I only know a little bit and I'm so excited. Oh. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, it's going to be so weird. (laughs) John Whiteside Parsons. (laughs) <laughs> you now what? you can see I'm you'll so see excited. why i was so excited uh, you're right i'm so excited john whiteside parsons was jack to his friends born in 1914 he grew up to be suave and handsome right. and the heir to a well-connected los angeles family his whole right. life he loved science fiction and right. this love sparked his childhood interest in rocketry uh-huh. he became <laughs> yeah He's interested in rockets. I know. Yep. He's a little boy who loves rockets. I mean, who didn't? We all love the rocket. He became a brilliant scientist, chemist, and one of America's top explosives experts. In his late 20s, he spent the majority of World War II at Caltech, working with a team that developed jet engines and rocket fuels. Hell yeah. He was one of the principal founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Right there in Los Angeles, right? Yep. (laughs) 
Jack was one of the last people you'd suspect of being a devout practitioner of black magic. What? what? Oh, a yeah. A scientist? Get one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The very real and legitimate very science real. place. Yes. <laughs> Was really into black magic. You have no idea yes. how into it. I'm so excited. Okay. While studying it. at the University of Southern California, he started reading the works of goth fave, Aleister Crowley. Yes, Aleister oh, Crowley. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, Just okay, looking like He's goth grandpa Aleister yep. Crowley. Crowley mm. was an Ingr- English sorcerer and Satanist whose work in black magic gave him the moniker the wickedest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Crowley reveled in his notoriety and loved that nickname. Drama queen. <laughs> oh, big time. Such a drama queen. His magnum opus, The Book of the Law, laid out mm-hmm. the dogma of Crowley's religion that he founded, which was called the Lima. Oh, that dogma God. can be <laughs> Yep. No. No. That dogma can be summed up neatly in the best known line from the Book of the Law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Jack was very into the idea of a religion that encouraged indulgence, hedonism, and the taboo. And Thelema was all about fucking, sucking, and getting weird with magical rituals. Yes, it was. It was just a lot of um, really unsanitary sexual situations. Yeah, it was a lot of robes. It was a lot of pyramids. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, lots of pyramids. And the like. Yeah. Just doing a lot of, listen, I'm into it. You do you, you have fun in whatever way you want. Um, but I fucking love there it. were a lot of, there were a lot of questionable folks at these parties. Oh yeah. <laughs> in 1939, Jack and his wife, Helen joined the Ordo Templi Orientis or the OTO, a Thelemic order that Crowley founded, whose purpose was the practice of, you guessed it, sex magic. Yes, sex magic. And if you think for one boom, second boom, boom, that we're not magic. throughout this PDF that I'm reading, that we're not spelling magic with a CK, then yes. you are not ready for Jack and you are not ready for this story. Yes, <laughs> yes Edie, bring it. Yes. <laughs> when Jack's father died, he inherited a mansion in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. But the only way he could afford to keep that house was by renting rooms. When he advertised for tenants in the newspaper, he made it clear that only atheists and bohemians could apply. Listen. Lots of lots of tenants were science fiction fans, just like Jack. Hell yeah. They had parties that continued for days and days, and guests slept on the floor when beds weren't available, and folks it regularly was, just what year was forgot it? to leave. It was the 60s, this is right? Around, this is around 1939, 1940. <laughs> it's, the, it's the 30s. It's the swing. Yeah, this is, the this is probably the, the early 40s at this time. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Jack called this place the Parsonage because he's Jack Parsons. Of course. And it's the Parsonage. Excellent. Really, really I good. can imagine, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Jack Parsons, this, like, handsome like errol flynn looking dude just like yes. scribbling in a little notebook like different robe. names yeah in a mm-hmm. big old robe different names for his fucking fuck house mm. yes <laughs> just just, like, just trying to decide the parsonage jack converted two of the biggest rooms 
into one, a private room for himself, and two, a temple for the OTO Lodge. In his room, there was an altar between two pyramid-shaped pillars with occult symbols everywhere. And the other room was a library full of occult books, and it was dominated by an enormous signed portrait of Aleister Crowley hanging over the fireplace. Oh, my God. And nobody was allowed to go in either room without Jack's permission. Nope. But they had a lot of OTO meetings at the Parsonage. It became the Los Angeles hub for the OTO. And these meetings were conducted by a priestess, and she was dressed in these sheer robes, Mm -hmm. and she'd climb out of a coffin Mm -hmm. to perform Mm -hmm. a bunch of rituals and just, like, touch herself in front of people or whatever. Yeah, no, that was, like, her main deal. Parsons quickly rose to prominence in the OTO, and he became the leader of that lodge. And by the early 1940s, he had begun a regular correspondence with his fave, Aleister Crowley. Can't even believe it. And in typical fanboy fashion, Jack always addressed Crowley as most beloved father and signed his letters, thy son, Jack. Come on, buddy. It's it's super thirsty. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You are. Jack loved Crowley. Yeah, he did. Crowley thought Jack was fine. Fine. According to one of the Parsonage's yep. residents, a guy named Alva Rogers, Jack had a voluminous correspondence with Crowley in the library, and he'd show it to people. In one letter, Crowley casually thanked Jack for his latest donation and intimated that more would shortly be needed. Jack nice. admitted that he was one of Crowley's main sources of money in America. Mm. Well, that's So, like, low. Crowley thought Jack was fine. Crowley thought Jack's money was great. Yeah. In the summer of 1944, yeah, because at this time Crowley's influence is waning. Mm -hmm. Yep, he was he was mostly like turn of the century, right? That was his time. Yeah, that was like his big his big Mm -hmm. old time, right? In the summer of 1944, Helen left Jack to run off with another OTO member who'd gotten her pregnant, but don't worry. Jack got back in the dating game real fast because mm-hmm. he started going out with Helen's younger sister, Sarah Northrup, well, who was then there. an 18-year-old college student, and he was 30. Mm, oh, God. Yep. Why not? With, why not? Only, well, they only have the same genes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good exchange. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Within a few months, Sarah dropped out and moved in with Jack at the Parsonage. And there, folks started calling her Betty. Why not? Why not? Her middle name was Elizabeth. Perfect. Betty soon got involved with the OTO and took part in its ceremonies, which, let's all remember, are all about sex magic. Yeah, sex magic. That's the only thing that's happening now, Uh uh is sex magic. It's all sex magic. Which is just... It's a lot of questionable people getting oh, real it's free and the loose. smells at the parsonage. Stop Oof. it. Stop this. Oof. The parsonage. Goddamn. <laughs> In accordance with Crowley's teachings, Jack encouraged Betty to have sex with other OTO members or anyone oh, else she wanted. Perfect. Great. And Jack said it wouldn't affect their relationship because 
jealousy was a base emotion that he mm. himself was too enlightened to feel. Wow. He's just too cool to be jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm a powerful magician. One afternoon in August 1945, mm-hmm. one of the Parsonage's guests, a science fiction illustrator, turned up with a friend who was on leave from the Navy. That friend was Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. Wow. Laffy Taffy. Wow. He's in the mix. He's in the mix. Look, it's Elrond. Elrond? What are you doing? What are you doing here? Jack liked Ron immediately and invited him to move in for the rest of his shore leave. Ron, ever the opportunist, took Jack up on it and immediately made himself home at the Mm -hmm. parsonage. He spent most evenings holding court at the kitchen table, telling stories about his adventures. That mouth. Yeah. What kind of stories did he tell? Well, Um, here's what we know about him. Truthful tales of being a warrior and a man of the sea. How did you know? Oh, I'm guessing because he's he's a wonderfully celebrated naval captain. Yeah. Well, for a while, Ron shared a room with a guy named Neeson Himmel, who was a reporter. Neeson wasn't into Ron. And he Ah. said, I can't stand phonies. And to me, he was so obviously phony, a real con man. But he was certainly not a dummy. I mean, he could charm the shit out of anybody. He talked interminably about his war experiences and seemed to have been everywhere. Once, he said he was on Admiral Halsey's staff. And I called a friend who worked with Halsey, and my friend said, shit, I've never heard of him. One time, he told a story about how he was walking down a corridor in the British Museum when he was suddenly grabbed by three scientists who dragged him into an office and began measuring his skull because it was such a perfect shape. (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody ever seen? Elron okay. Hubbard's head is not it's, the perfect shape. It's not a perfect shape. It's, there's nothing good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, gee, Ron, that's a great story. Didn't I read it in George Bernard Shaw? And another time he said he was in the Aleutians in command of a destroyer and a polar bear jumped from an ice floe onto his ship and chased everyone around. And I recognized it as an old folklore story that goes way, way back. And he was always Nine broke and trying to borrow money. Whenever he was talking about being hard up, he often used to say that he thought the easiest way to make money would be to start a religion. The quote of the century, guy, uh-huh. just right there. Yep. And yep. goddamn, if he wasn't absolutely correct. He was fucking right. He did. And they, oh yeah, Scientology. Mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard, America's Ron. man. Unlike Neeson, Jack had no reservations about Ron. Because Jack was a sucker. Jack believed that Ron had enormous magical potential. And so fervent was this belief that Jack took the risk of breaking his oath of secrecy in the OTO to let (gasps) Ron in on some of the rituals. What? He Joe Bluthed it. What? He told a non-alliance magician how to do (laughs) the illusions. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And you know, <laughs> Betty liked Ron too. What's not to like about the mm. pure animal magnetism of Lafayette, Ugh. Ron Hubbard? Ugh. Oh, God. I mean, she liked Ron a lot. There's something about So it. much so that uh, 
started fucking around. And they would make out right in front of Jack. Well, that's fine because Jack is an elevated being, isn't he? He doesn't Jealousy have... is a base emotion right. that Jack Parsons does Jack not feel. Does not and know so it. he pretended he loved it. That he, he loved yeah, it. he loved it. He was he just pretended like, that he was get on it. <laughs> Jack tried to pretend that he was unbothered, but it was super obvious that he hated oh, yeah. this new development. Can't blame him. But even though he was being openly and obviously cucked by Elron yeah. Hubbard. <laughs> such a such a sentence. Yes. He still, still believed oh, that Ron was a powerful magician. He wrote Crowley the following deeply, deeply pathetic letter. Oh god. About three months ago, I met Captain L. Ron Hubbard, a writer and explorer of whom I had known for some time. He is a gentleman, red hair, green eyes, honest mm. and intelligent, and we've become great friends. Honest. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affections to him. <laughs> although he has no formal training in magic with a capital M and a CK. <laughs> He has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. He's also interested in establishing the new Aeon. But for cogent reasons, I have not introduced him to the Lodge. We are pooling our resources in a partnership which will act as a parent company to control our business ventures. I think I have made a great gain, and as Betty and I are the best of friends, there is little loss. I need a magical oh partner. I have many experiments in mind. Oh, God. So, as you can see, Jack was fine. Oh, completely. Jack, Jack, Jack was, was too totally busy fine. fawning. He was too busy yeah. fawning over Elrond. He was about. totally fine, and everything was cool and chill, except that Alva Rogers and his girlfriend mm -hmm. once saw him in the middle of the night wearing a black robe and chanting in his room, like, super obviously trying to put a curse on Ron. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. That's great. Oh, that's it great. It did not work. Don't let him see you cry, Jack. He was, like... Described as being just like the door was open a little bit and Alva just like he and his girlfriend mm -hmm. who lived across the hall just saw him just chanting just viscerally like his soul was coming out oh, through God. his voice. Just this like deeply sad, just the, the, the sad chance of a cucked magician. <laughs> Imagine that sound, and that's the sound it's that desperate. Jack made. It's a wailing. His mm -hmm. fucking tenant and his girlfriend then oh, said they went yeah. back into their room and talked about it all night. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> what the fuck Jack. is up with Jack? Oh, what's going on with Jack? <laughs> so Ron's living his best life as the new cock of the walk at the Parsonage, and Jack stayed friends with Ron because he Why saw not? the situation as a test best of his friend. will. He believed Ron was essential for a world-changing ritual that he wanted to perform. And that ritual is the Babylon working. 
The working has two stages. In the first stage, Jack and Ron would summon the goddess Babylon in human form using a living woman as a vessel. And that lucky lady is the Scarlet Woman, who would be the bride of the Antichrist, and the two would do all kinds of sex magic together. And in the second stage of the working, the Scarlet Woman and the Antichrist (laughs) would, through ritual, conceive a child whose birth would bring about a new world order, the dawn of a new age, the age of love. Well, that's lofty. That is what yeah, a goal. Yeah, lofty goals. Lofty goals. And like, that is, um, who's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has no. big plans. Jack has big plans. Big And ideas. he thinks highly of himself because you need the Scarlet Woman and you need the Antichrist, right? And he and he's going to daddy the Antichrist. Oh, no, no, no. The Antichrist in this scenario, the one who inherits mm-hmm. Crowley's power. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Jack. And well, Ron, for his part, yeah, yeah, Jack's know. giving himself I mean, the, he's giving himself the daddy job, which like, okay, frankly, okay. good for you, Jack. You've yeah, been yeah, yeah. fucking stomped you've, on. You've, you've had a hard time of it of your own free will. Yeah, no, he's really, he's really walked himself really, into a bunch of rakes. Yeah, he's proving how not jealous he is. Doing, no, he's, doing he's not jealous. He's not jealous. And Ron was going to be the scribe. He listened to the messages from the astral plane and recorded them and would instruct Jack. Yeah, he's the scribe. Ron's the scribe. Jack's the magician slash antichrist. Obviously. So the first stage took place throughout January 1946. Here's how it would work. Jack would use his magical wand to create a vortex of energy (laughs) and summon the elemental Babylon while the scribe scans the astral plane for messages. Obviously. Now, when you say magical wand. uh Uh-huh. Yep. Jack jerked off while Ron watched and sometimes told him what to do. (laughs) Oh, okay. I thought that's where we were going. I thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like Harry Potter wand. It's not like Harry Potter it's wand. Not, it's not quite a, a stick. So. No, it says Deke. Yeah, it's a so, lot. It's a lot of sex magic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is a lot because Jack and Ron performed these rituals over 11 consecutive oh, nights. Oh, that is intimate. Yep. And at first, Jack wrote in his journals that, that like, oh, yeah, 11 days in a row. And at first, Jack wrote in his journals that, like, not much was happening. I mean, a strong windstorm blew up on, like, Mm -hmm. the second and third days. And in a letter to Crowley, he wrote, Nothing seems to have happened. The windstorm is very interesting, but that is not what I asked for. Okay, well, um, that I mean, fair. That isn't, I I guess that isn't what he asked for. Mm -hmm. Um, And while these jerk-off rituals were ongoing... Jack, Ron, and Betty also attended to other business because for a while, Ron had been floating the idea of the three of them going into business together, (laughs) buying yachts on the East Coast and sailing them to California. And on January 15th, as the working was ongoing, the three of them signed a contract creating their business. It was called Allied Enterprises. And here's how it broke down. Well, here's where. Jack (laughs) invested his entire life savings of $21,000. Ron put in just over $1,000 and Betty put in nothing. Conservative in your investments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Jack, honey, I didn't know you put in your whole life savings. His whole life savings while he's doing these fucking jerk off instructional (laughs) (laughs) Babylon workings. This is a 
scientist. This is a scientist. A rocket. This is a, a scientist, scientist who develops rockets and He's jet fuel and jet engines. Literal rocket scientist. This man is a genius. So in between the jerk-offs and the signing of the business, he's, like, getting really frustrated with the working, but he diligently continued jerking off with Ron in the name good, of magic. Good, I mean, you got to keep up your consistency. He's got to keep it going. You got to so keep finally, up your energy. Yeah. And on January 18th, things started looking up. Jack and Ron were out in the Mojave Desert, and at sunset, Jack felt his stress melt away, and it was replaced with a sense of well-being and calm. Hmm. And he turned to Ron, and he said, it is done. Hmm? And when they got back to the parsonage, they found a new tenant waiting for them. Oh. Marjorie Cameron. Well, who's Jack Mark? immediately wrote Crowley. Uh-huh. I seem to have my elemental. She has red hair and slant green eyes, as specified. Right. And Crowley, ever the horny dog, even in his declining years, wrote back, <laughs> I am particularly interested in what you have written to me about the elemental, because for some little while past, I have been endeavoring to intervene personally in this matter on your behalf. <laughs> Interesting that you finally found this deeply fuckable <laughs> woman. Right. Oh, oh, oh. What are we saying here? What are we, what are we saying? Mm, 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 mm. Send photos. Send photographs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Send um, butthole pictures, please. <laughs> wow. So, um, but also, he was not impressed with this. He's like not this whole time. Crowley's Crowley. like this. You're it's like, I don't care. He's... He's thinking that um, Jack's reach exceeds his grasp. He's like, he doesn't really ah, think okay. too highly of Jack as a magician. And okay. so he's all like, be careful with this working. You're not good enough to do this. But Jack believed he was. So now that the Scarlet Woman had appeared, the second stage of the working could begin. Okay. All Here's right. what it's about. In Crowley's 1929 novel, The Moon Child, he described the creation of a living being in form resembling a man and possessing those qualities of man which distinguish him from beasts, namely intellect and power of speech, but neither begotten and born in the manner of human generation, nor inhabited by a human soul. And Crowley <laughs> said that this moon child was the great idea of magicians of all times. To obtain a messiah by some adaptation of the sexual process. <laughs> wow. Um, Jack so, wanted to create the moon child with Marjorie. But wait, are we saying novel? We're saying it, yeah. it was a novel of a piece In of fiction? In a novel that Crowley wrote. I thought, okay, so I... Moonchild is a novel. The Book of the Law is his, like, dogmatic It's his religious, writing. right, right, right. I didn't realize, like, even Crowley was like, no, dog, this ain't real. Like, this is a, this Well, is a it's like, you know, with Crowley, it's like, you know, it's, it's all real and it's be. all not real. And Nothing's what is real? real? And somebody get over here and fuck me. Like, it was very... <laughs> Yes, it's very that. He okay. just went into everything like it's all possible. My asshole is open, like open for business. Probably was yeah, it's open for business. Always. All right. All Jack right. wanted to create the Moonchild with Marjorie yeah. and of course Good. Ron. Because it moon was Child Ron. again is the Antichrist, right? It's like the Moonchild is the result of the communion between the Antichrist and the Scarlet Woman. Antichrist and plus Jack Scarlet is, Woman. 
this the, the antichrist. antichrist jack is the and marjorie is the scarlet scarlet woman, woman. got it and Ron is the scribe. And Ron Obviously. communes with the astral plane. And he did so mm-hmm. and he dictated instructions for the Moonchild's incarnation during some of their rituals. And Jack wrote them down. And these rituals mainly contained uh, these rituals mainly consisted of the three of them dressing up in cool robes, lighting <laughs> candles, and then Jack and Marjorie fucking while Ron watched. And this was very serious magic, oh. and they had to do these rituals over the next three nights. How many times? Second night, How? yeah. Oh God! The first night they do their, their first try. The second night, a white sheet smeared with period blood was laid yep. out on the floor of the temple. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. And as Jack performs the invocation of the wands with Marjorie, it's exactly <laughs> what, what it sounds like. <laughs> you idiot. Yeah. He is fucking Marjorie, and Ron is instructing them. And here's what he says on this no, second night. No. Embrace her. No! Cover her with kisses. <laughs> Think upon the lewd, lascivious things thou couldst do. How are you doing All that is so good well. to Babylon. All. The lust is hers. The passion yours. Consider thou the beast. She's just like... Giving them yeah. these like fake ritualistic like attaboys while Jack and Marjorie Great are fucking job. on a sheet covered in period blood. Who's I don't know. It's not it's the least important detail, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. We love we love Edie because Edie does the voices. <laughs> I do the voices. Yeah. yeah. I don't have I don't really have an L. Ron Hubbard, but um, I had to try an L. Ron Hubbard. It was a beautiful L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, thank L. Ron you. Ron Hubbard. And so on their third and final day, they ended uh, their sex magic with a poem. Well, of course. It um, yeah. it is a ritual. Her mouth is red and her mm. breasts are fair. And her loins are full of fire. Stop it. And her lust is strong as a man is strong in the heat of her desire. And her whoredom as holy as virtue is foul beneath the holy sky. And her kisses will wanton the world away in passion that shall not die. Ye shall laugh in love and follow her dance when the wrath of God is gone. And dream no more of hell and hate in the birth of Babylon. Well... (laughs) It's you like know? Dennis Rader level poetry. It's very bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Honestly, if anybody's ever read better, any of BTK's a, poems, <laughs> it's like just, it's like a bare, it's like a half step above BTK. It's like a little bit better than BTK's yeah, poems. Yeah, because it's less questions than BTK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you appear? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, death. Oh, death. Jack was convinced that the Babylon working was a success so of course he wrote Crowley in hopes of getting a pat on the head from daddy for being such a good boy daddy I did it I did it daddy Daddy, but Crowley who was by then in his 70s super addicted to heroin and very close to death was irritated and he wrote to his deputy in New York the OTO deputy in New York Apparently Jack or Ron or somebody is producing a moon child. I get fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these louts. (laughs) Such a 
princess. He's being such a bitch to Jack, who, <laughs> let's not forget, Paid. is Crowley's main yes. source, source of, of income, income at this point. He supports his existence. Who buys all that heroin, Alistair? Who buys that heroin, Alistair? Jack does. Meanwhile, as April 1946 rolled around, Ron was running out of money. And his solution was to persuade Jack that it was time to make moves with Allied Enterprises. So towards the end of April, Ron and Betty left for Florida to buy some boats and bring them back. It's such a weird... Why are... This is so just, weird. You know, it's just we're buying the boats, we're bringing them back. All right. Crowley had an inkling <laughs> of what Ron was up to. Not surprising, since Crowley himself had been relying on Jack's money to stay afloat for years. Sure. So he cabled that OTO member in New York. Suspect Ron of playing confidence trick. Jack evidently <laughs> weak fool, oblivious victim, prowling yeah. swindlers. Mm. To another OTO member, he wrote, It seems to me on the information of our brethren in California that Jack has committed errors. Mm. He has got a miraculous illumination that rhymes with nothing, and he has apparently lost all his personal independence. From our brother's account, he has given away both his girl and his money. Apparently, it is an ordinary confidence trick. And finally, after a few weeks, I know it's pathetic. After a few weeks, even Jack noticed that he hadn't heard anything from Ron or Betty. And and they just all of his life savings. Gone off. Well, they just took 10 grand to buy the boats. But he had no clue where they were. But eventually, Ron called from Florida and he reversed the $10,000 charge. But they were still in the Allied Enterprises account, as far as I can tell, and not back to Jack personally. But instead of being pissed... He was soon laughing with his best friend on the phone, and the conversation ended with Jack saying, I hope we shall always be partners, Ron. But they wouldn't be. no. They wouldn't be. By mid-July 1946, Allied Enterprises dissolved, and Jack never (laughs) saw Ron or Betty again. Oh, no. I did not know this part of the story. (laughs) Yeah. They just, they dissolved with the assets being divided among the three. Why Jack gave almost all the money? I was gonna say it just wasn't super fair. He just he just wanted out and he got out. Jack never saw Ron or Betty again. And later that year, Ron and Betty got married. <gasps> Jack, yeah. all right. Jack later reflected well on this time in his life in his journal, which, oh, is, which he called the Book of Antichrist, in which he convinced <laughs> himself it was actually very cool and good. The final what? experience with Hubbard and Betty and the OTO was necessary to overcome your false and infantile reliance on others, although this was only partially accomplished at the time. That's, I forgot he wrote everything in the third person. Yeah. Well, and, yep. Mm, there's, a, there's a sliver of honesty in there. A little bit. It's like, yeah, well, it's, you, needed, you needed to go through it to become a better person, even though it didn't seem that way when it was happening. So Crowley and the OTO are still really skeptical about the working. Jack thought that he could send Marjorie over to London to convince Crowley that she was the Scarlet Woman. And he sends her over there and she gets waylaid in Paris, partying it up. And by the time she actually makes the decision to go from Paris to London, Crowley was dead. Mm. (laughs) Okay. He died in 1947. Oh, Sorry, yep. Daddy. Bye, Daddy. <laughs> oh, poor Daddy. And Jack ultimately left the OTO, but he and Marjorie stayed together. And mm-hmm. He sold the parsonage, and he and Marjorie moved into the coat ho- coach house that was attached, and they eventually got married. 
Okay. By January 1952, yada, 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 McCarthy era, Jack lost his security clearance. Yeah. And right. so a rocket scientist without clearance isn't super employable. So Jack and Marjorie made plans to leave the country and begin a new magical school. They planned to go to Israel after a like, brief like a sojourn magic, in like Mexico. A, like a sex magic school? Jack's so into sex magic. He wants to do another magical Still? school. What he, ca- he liked rockets fine, but he loved magic. Okay. All right, man. You do yep. you. On June 17th, 1952, the night before they were supposed to leave for Mexico, Jack dropped a vial of mercury fulminate in his home laboratory. <laughs> the lab exploded and Jack died instantly. Yeah. <laughs> that was only yep. He was only 37. Oh my god. officially God. considered I know he was very young. I always officially considered young death by misadventure. Right. Some believe Jack's death remains insufficiently explained. <laughs> While Jack's mark on the magical world may not have been as indelible as he'd hoped it would be, his scientific contributions were historic. Yeah, and the rockets he developed eventually helped NASA astronauts land on the moon. And in recognition of his gifts to the world of space exploration, a crater on the dark side of the moon has been named in his honor. And that's <laughs> the story of Jack Parsons. And the Scarlet Woman. Wow. Thank Edie. you, Edie. That's a great I one. I in love. Cool. Oh, I loved you. it. That, that is such a good story. I know nothing about any of that. <laughs> That's my favorite story. The intersection of a rocket scientist, Aleister Crowley, and L. Ron L. Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard. Part. I always I forget the L. Ron Hubbard part, and I just yeah. simply don't remember the yacht plot. What? Yeah, yeah, that was like it's a so minor stupid. part of it, but it's just so classic, mm. Ron. Yes, it is. It's the power of yeah. Like L. by Ron the way, Hubbard. I'm going to take your money. <laughs> I'm going to take your girl and your money, and we're going to just never see you again. Yeah. And he took a lot of what he learned while he was with the OTO, the OTO yeah. mm-hmm. brought it into Dianetics for sure. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Edie. Well, thanks that was again. incredible. That was, you I, I'm, do such good voices. Yes. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Miss, where can they find us on social media? Well, you know where they can find us. It's at Creepy Inquiries Pod at gmail.com except that's our email address that's but email. everywhere else everywhere else is at creepy inquiries pod on facebook and instagram or you can visit our website at creepy inquiries pod.com um you can send us an email with any suggestions or ideas um or if you just want to yeah. say hey yeah feel free to give us uh drop us a line or maybe i don't know give us a little rate and review Five stars or nothing. Yeah, five stars or nothing. Yes. Don't don't waste our time or yours. All right. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, again, thank you everyone for sticking around for us. This is episode 25. Look 25. At us. It was so good. Thank you for having me. Thank you of for being course. back, Edie. We always love having you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the next time. See you at Dirty 30. (laughs) If not before. Oh, yes.
<laughs> well, it was a pleasure, Kev and Edie. It was such a good, such a good episode. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to see you both. You too. Even if it is over Zoom. Yeah. So until next episode, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.